When COVID hit, I felt we needed to be doing something more to support our community, especially around their mental health and wellbeing. As many of my listeners will know, this is such an important topic that should be discussed. Dyslexia can cause many feelings, including social isolation, feelings of being different and not fitting in. We can also struggle when the work environment suddenly shifts, like working from home with no support in place. So this year, I set up the Mental Health and Thriving series, and we've had a range of guests working in mental health and wellbeing. So today, I am thrilled to be speaking with Penny, the founder of Groups. Groups provide an array of services specialising exclusively in addressing the emotional repercussions of dyslexia. This is such an important service and Penny's story of how she came about setting up groups is an inspiration to all our fellow dyslexics. Welcome Penny to the show. I'm so excited um, to have you on this evening, your morning to talk about dyslexia and mental health. I'm a big fan of your work and have followed you ever since um, I started the foundation. So thank you so much for coming on the show today. My absolute pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. So can you tell us um, a little bit about the work you do um, for our listeners, a lot of them are in Australia, uh, so they can hear a bit about what you do in the UK? Mm, Sure. Um, At the moment, what what we do is work exclusively with um, dyslexic people, usually adults uh, over the age of 18. And we work to help them establish a sense of who they are as a dyslexic person in the world. Now, it isn't to do with reading and writing. It's to do with um, understanding that there are certain environments that might be quite stressful for them, to be able to cope with it, to understand themselves, um, and to be a dyslexic person without wishing to get rid of the dyslexia, to understand it rather than see it as something that's a negative. So we provide one-on-one work uh, sessions, uh, depending on the needs of the person. We do work uh, long-term with people, but we tend to find that between five and 10 sessions help someone to kind of understand. We also do um, psychoeducational work with parents to help them learn how to support their, their youngsters and the emotional development of their youngsters and, of course, themselves. So we do trainings as well. And so how did you get um, into this line of work? Through a very long and convoluted road. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> where do I start with this? First of all, I, I guess I, I should say that I left school with no qualifications at all. It was not the the greatest environment for me and my folks had to move around because of the economic situation of our country at the time. So each school that I went to would have a different uh, approach, um, a different way of teaching. Anyway, I left school at 15, as, as one could then, with not a clue to how I was going to uh, look after myself through varied things um, from music to presentation to the arts. I managed to forge a fairly healthy career for myself. And even at one point was a garden designer and artist. But it wasn't until I hit my 40s that I thought I really wanted to tackle the, like the, what I call my academic dragon, which was, I'd always been, insatiable in my search for knowledge 
um, and found ways of being able to teach myself. But I'd never found um, an environment that actually helped me to understand how to learn. Anyway, some way or other, I managed to persuade a university, the University of London, to take me on for a master's, which was quite, quite a, a, a thing on their part because I didn't have any previous qualifications. But it was in the interview, they could see the variety of things that I'd done in my life. I went into it thinking it doesn't actually matter if I pass or fail, I will still be learning. Now, that's easy to say when you're in your 40s, not great when you're in your teens and 20s. I had nothing to lose. And what I actually found was that I was in an environment that really encouraged me and I just blew. Then I thought, how can this happen that a child is written off and yet there is this environment that encourages adults to learn and to grow? And it was really from there that the germination of groups started, really working in schools, working in group work, uh, finding that most of the young people who were sent to us were neurodiverse in some way, and then realizing that there was this whole raft of uh, emotional repercussions that were not sorted by different learning or, or writing schemes. And I have dyslexic children myself and neurodiverse children myself, my partner, we now know is very dyspraxic. So there's a whole mesh of things that um, brought me to like where I am now. And so was it because of your children that you lent yourself to this um, type of area? Because there's many areas that you can go into um, yeah. when you get into counselling. So was that the reason why you looked at supporting people with dyslexia when you're into this? I think that is, that is very true. And I knew I was dyslexic. What I didn't know that it impacted on how... I relate with the world. Now, working with my children, um, I could see that they had the same quirks as me, but I didn't put that down to the neurodiversity. I just thought, well, that's the way we are. Uh, it wasn't until um, I had my own full assessment, actually because I got to the point of burnout, that I realized that the things that I was struggling with were the things that were to do with dyslexia so yes it was about supporting them it's also in that constellation of things in life come together and it's like what else what else do you need a burning bush <laughs> you look at it and you think oh my <laughs> goodness <laughs> you know this is why this is happening um and you think it's just you or your family but we, I took it a step further and started inquiring of others and of course then found that um you take the, the top off the box and all sorts of things come out. And there, there was this huge um, understanding of the emotional dilemma, especially young people were going through in their education and how they were being asked to um, learn when they were in a state of, of trauma in many cases. And that's when I started sort of inquiring, looking and seeing what we could do. Often we're working with um, adults who, if you like, are, they're survivors by the very fact that they've got to adulthood. So they, they know that they can cope. But increasingly, we've been working with younger people 
being almost like mentors, advocates to be able to support them and say, you know, it is difficult. This is what's going on. And as you learn about yourself, things will become easier. So it was a whole mishmash of things that um, in this wonderful dyslexic mind that I have, I had it all uploaded and was looking at all the different things and where the gaps were and the similarities were. And it was like, oh, my goodness, there it is. That's, that's what's needed. What at um, what point were you diagnosed that you had dys- with dyslexia? Was it um, when you got into university, or prior to that? No, no. I actually didn't have um, a full assessment until much later on. And it, it's interesting because I thought of myself as dyslexic because I knew yeah, I had reverse letters and. Um, I could see the struggles that um, my my children had and sort of relate to it. And they had had an assessment of, of dyslexia. So I thought, well, you know, I must be in there. But it was all about education. It wasn't about the emotional side. For me, it was when I was finding myself working seven days a week, 15 hours a day to get things done. And realizing that other people were doing it in a fundamentally different way um, and I had the blessing of a wonderful supervisor at the time who was not neurodiverse incidentally but had uh, done a lot of work with the Open University and I said look I, I, I think I must have a brain tumor or something because I just can't do the things that I see many other people doing and she suggested that I have a full assessment. And I have to say, even at that point, I had had the same kind of social prejudice, if you like, against dyslexia being used as an excuse. Um, And I, again, the gift of having Sylvia Moody do my assessment, Mm. who handed me a chapter of her book on emotions and dyslexia. And it was so revealing. I just read myself in those pages. And it was, well, something has got to be done about this. That point, I thought, I really need to talk to someone who knows what this is about on a psychological level. And there wasn't anyone. There were plenty of tutors or or skills trainers, but there's absolutely no one that I could talk to where I could say, so is this to do with it? And all these things about losing conversation and not understanding things, getting my words muddled and all that kind of thing, that part of it, oh my God. You know, so I was, I was a sort of late starter, if you like, thank God, uh, although it gave me then insight into what it's like when you think, well, what might I have done had I known, had I known in my teens, had I known in my twenties, what might I have done that, um, Well, the work you do is amazing and um, there's definitely not enough of you uh, across the world from from what I'm learning, particularly uh, in Australia from the research I'm doing with my PhD. um, The feedback from people has been that they go to a counsellor or a psychologist and they just have no understanding of the dual diagnosis of dyslexia and uh, depression or anxiety or um, post-traumatic stress or trauma from school and what they went through so um which is one of the reasons why i was so excited to have the opportunity to talk to you tonight so because it's such a significant issue for people with dyslexia and and it feels like 
you know, you're right, there's been so much focus on tutors and educators and those formative years, which are so important, um, but it's focused so much on literacy and not around the whole person or the whole child and the impact it can have. Absolutely, absolutely. I think what we've noticed is that there's a real um, paradox in that in the psychological development of the child um, and the social engagement system, that the child needs to feel held and safe by those that look after them. And often the experience of going to school, being sent to school, which is often an environment that is very caustic for them, can be very toxic, is very difficult for them to understand that this person who's meant to be caring for them actually has no power in taking me away from this environment that I find very distressing. So we find that the, the nervous system of our older dyslexic clients are really stuck in fight and flight or, or um, freeze and flop. And there's no sort of window of comfort. There's no window of being able to self-soothe in the world. So a lot of our work is about taking them from either being uh, very sort of overwrought or very low into a place where there can be a sense of calmness within themselves that no one else can take away. But you, you are repairing damage that has come from many triggers in the past. Did you reflect on your mental health and well-being and were there any um, challenges that you had that you could okay. identify with because of what you'd gone through? Absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, it wasn't about the diagnosis. Men mental health for me had been a challenge all through my life. And it was distinctly linked to not realising that I was neurodiverse. I didn't, I didn't view the world in the same way as others. I didn't process information in the same way. And that the, the sort of negative feedback was, you know, you're not normal, this, you should be able to do this and all sorts of things that would make me feel that my self-esteem, my self-confidence is sort of ripped apart. And it is a, a wonderful feeling, I say this to all your listeners, when you get to a point where you think, you know what, I've worked on this and I am fine with who I am. I'm okay with who I am. But it takes an enormous amount of self-exploration to do that so you know I, I've been in therapy many many times through my life before I got into counseling and psychotherapy trying to understand what it was that go was going on that made me feel so different from so many other people very creative very quirky but you know I needed to have an awful lot of space away from people I would get very overstimulated my nervous system was ratcheted up to such a high degree that um, I would feel like my brain was exploding these are all parts of the emotional side of, of dyslexia and keeping your environment clean and safe. But I just didn't know it at the time. I was fine. And I was so, in my own way. And it's, um, it's interesting that you say around your experiences with having a lot of therapy because I talk a lot about having a lot of therapy myself from a young age before I knew I was dyslexic as well, but the importance of having someone to check in with and to, to help you navigate life in general um, with the complexities as well as having dyslexia. But have you seen with your clients coming through that they've had similar challenges to you and that those feelings where you can't be your authentic self or you don't know how to be your authentic self? 
almost universally. It is uh, when you think of a child getting that sense, which is not always verbal, that sense of, oh, um, I'm different to those people over there. So maybe if I pretend to be like them, I will be more normal. So we develop this kind of mask that allows us to perform, but it doesn't allow us to get to know ourselves. Now, if you're disavowing an aspect of yourself, how can you truly be in relationship with others? And it's getting to that point where you're okay with who you are. But often people stretch themselves to a degree of wanting to, things to be perfect, to um, push themselves to the limit, to show everybody else that they're wrong and unright kind of thing. But it's, it's moving away from that. I think I will have to do this in the way I can do it to learn. And that's okay. And if I'm okay with having worked as hard as I can, that is also okay. And so what are, um, what are some of the strategies that you've seen really help uh, people coming through your clinics? We've had some neuropsychs and psychologists on, um, and we were talked about strategies like mindfulness and, um, you know, trying to be healthy and exercising and things like that. Yeah, I, we, we work in a slightly different um, way in that we are explaining to people what is going on so they get that aha moment. One of the um, primary things to understand from our perspective is someone understanding their energy, the amount of energy it actually takes them to be a dyslexic person in a world that's been set up for linear thinkers. Because we demand of ourselves that we should be able to do everything that a linear thinker does without giving ourselves credit for all the amazing things that our minds can do. So we're putting added pressure on. It isn't that the, the mental health presentations, if you like, are different to everybody else, but it does mean that it uses more energy. We have to appreciate the energy output and these, these things happen more frequently, more intensely, and ultimately they become more depleting. And if you aren't aware of it, you keep on pushing yourself through it to the point of burnout. And then often, because there isn't a psychological um, outlet, it becomes a physical, internalized, the body sleeps instead. And people can become extremely poor, like migraines, it might be ulcers, um, colitis, all, all sorts of things can kind of go up because it's, the body will do its best to cope. But if it's feeling despairing, it's going to shout at you in one way or another. So it is about looking at what's going on in your world. What is the environment like in which you work or are being educated or your home life? How much energy does that cost you? How are your needs being met? We work with the, the Gibbons principles. We look at um, finding out what the emotional inventory of the person is. If, if their needs have not been met in the past, is it possible through the therapy to get them met now so that they can, in effect, parent themselves and not have a, a negative stream of... Um, voice if you like a negative voice in the mind i'm stupid i can't do this i'm sick but you know what uh, and, and sometimes i find with people it's very much um oh i don't know or maybe or i don't know yet 
is a simple transformation, re reframing of phrases that we often uh, say to ourselves that can be very negative and trying to make them more positive. Mindfulness is, is great. Um, it is about not time traveling, which we, we do very easily. We, we can time travel in our imagination to the past, but everything coming into our minds in, in absolute detail, and we can push ourselves out of the universe into the future with every possible thing that could go wrong. <laughs> and this is held in our exhausted minds. What we learn to do with our clients is bring ourselves into the space. So yes, it is mindfulness, but it isn't, it isn't the eight-week mindfulness course that many people might go on, which again, for a dyslexic person to do things um, in a very specific order, in a very specific way, can weigh on them. And we don't want to set our clients up to fail. They've had enough of that over their, their lifetimes. It's about prompting them to do things, small steps that make them feel exhilarated, energized, and really good about themselves. But the fundamental part of the work is the relational part, being able to talk to someone who really gets it, who really understands what it's like to live your life in this way and how depleting energetically, emotionally, psychologically it can be. It's, um, there's two questions running through my head and I wish I'd written them down now <laughs> because I'm so involved, in, so involved in listening to what you're saying and my head is nodding because you can't see me, but um, everything you're saying is so true for myself and <laughs> for other people as well. But it, how do you... Um, there's a lot of talk around dyslexic strengths and um, genius and trying to reframe dyslexia in a positive light for the community. But do you find that how do you build people up to see their strengths? Because from the people I've spoken to in my research, there's a lot of people that the day-to-day -day challenges that you're talking about, it's hard to then be able to find your strengths. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, again, we... we we certainly don't focus on deficits. Uh, dyslexic people have had enough of that for, for many, many years. But we don't um, advocate, <laughs> if you like, the gift of dyslexia. Because many people in the early years will say to us, well, where's my gift? This is such hard work. And it, it is hard work. I mean, they haven't actually realised that the way they think is, is utterly unique. It's miraculous. But it, it is allowing them to explore it so that they get a sense of the wonderment of themselves. And that can only come from the person. I could tell someone they're brilliant to the cows campaign. But are they going to believe it? I think not. Until they get a sense of, oh, actually, I do see things in the world that other people don't. There are things that I can do that, um, are, are, are really um, make up being a, a pretty fantastic human being, but they don't get A stars or a certificate for them. And one of those is being able to build rapport and have relationships with people. Our whole workforce has been shifted so much over the last couple of decades with people expected to do elements of everything all at the same time. And it, it's lost its way with people being able to work to their strengths. I don't mean just dyslexic strengths, just work to their strengths. And we've ended up in this, this workplace mess where people are expected to do a, a huge amount of administration when 
their gifts might be, working with others, keeping a team together, inspiring others, having the ideas, and then passing it on to someone else. So it's about trying to find an environment where someone doesn't necessarily um, think, oh, my dyslexia is wonderful, but it is is working towards your known sense of what you can do, whilst accepting, because lots of linear thinkers can't do what you do, you may need uh, a a right-hand human that is a linear thinker to help you with the things that you find difficult. For instance, for instance, if I were to have to do all the administration of the charity, it would take up 90% of my energy, which would mean that I would have 10% to do the things that I'm actually exceptional at. So I have to have someone who supports me. But fortunately, in our country, we do get that um, through access to, to work. But it was finding that these are the things that I'm really good at. And so we look for that with our clients. What are the things that you are good at? Can you accept that in yourself? Can, can you buy into it? And then it's looking at the frustration, the shame, the guilt that kind of comes from all the other stuff, which actually has nothing to do with their dyslexia, to do with how they've been treated because they're dyslexic. Oh, my brain stopped because part of me is thinking how I'm so envious that you get to have an administrator <laughs> because we don't have that type, we don't have that type of support in Australia. And when when COVID hit, I lost my administrator because we didn't have any funding to pay her. And the um, the amount of administration and mistakes I make because I don't have someone checking uh, is significant. Well, and a similar thing here because obviously with, with the first lockdown, no one did anything. And all I can say, you know, it's like, I tried my death. But, you know, I'm aware of when um, my support worker isn't in, I will think that I've done something perfectly okay. And the next time I look at it, I will see the mistakes. Now, there was a time when I would be so disheartened. And it is about reframing that. Have I done the best I can? One of the things we find really difficult to persuade people is that it is the self-discipline to slow down and do something so that you are doing it when you're in your cognitive mind. Because as soon as we get into a panic, that's when our thinking goes. Um, and, I, and I advocate before the client, I need to sort of take my own medicine, which is, okay, this, this past sort of eight months or whatever was really about revisiting that. It's like, okay, now do what you tell everybody else to do, Penny. And it was taking it down a notch not doing as many newsletters, not getting in a panic if I couldn't work out how MailChimp worked. Um, <laughs> finding, <laughs> okay, there, there are 200 emails and I, I haven't looked at them. There will come a time. Don't do them first thing because your brain's going to get exhausted. You won't be able to do the work that you can do very well. All these sort of things that are about um, personal self-discipline and it's really hard for a creative dyslexic mind to do that because we want to go off bouncing off the walls and think of all the nice, exciting things and how things connect and lose ourselves in daydreams and imagination and ideas and creativity. But there is a part of it that is just about living life the best way we can. And it's doing things at our pace. Yes, and the world hasn't enabled us until COVID really has it to do it at our own pace because it's so fast paced. 
and everyone wants it done now or yesterday. And um, it's hard to keep up with that pace. It is. It is very hard. And again, this might stick in the core that, that often, no, not often in generalised pain, um, there are situations when it is good to be thoughtful about whether a full-time job is the best environment. And sometimes in order to live life, live life, enjoy life, it's finding a balance. Can I actually work at a pace that's okay and have my downtime? Again, as an example, for years, I pushed myself to the limit and I found I was working seven days a week. When I actually took my own advice, I then sorted my diary into clinical work being on a Monday, a Wednesday and a Friday, which meant no matter how depleted I might be on a Monday, I knew that I had Tuesday in order to be able to catch up on something, make my lists, work through them. It wasn't like I was just rolling on a hamster wheel all the time, just about keeping up. And it's it's finding the best environment that can work for the person. And it's different, it's unique for every single person that you work with. And it has to come from them. I'm sitting here nodding my head again, thinking that's such a, a good a good strategy. Um, <laughs> I was thinking I can't wait till I finish my PhD so then I'm not doing the seven-day hamster wheel as well. But it is important to have that time. Like I sleep a lot and my friends and family laugh at me and say, oh, you're such a good sleeper. And if I said to them that's because of my dyslexia, my brain needs a break, they just roll their eyes and go, oh, whatever. <laughs> but it's true. Well, it is, absolutely is. And um, especially when you're learning, you're going in your mind, it's as if all those events are happening all at the same time. It's not just the linear A, B, C, D. It is mm. it from all different perspectives and, and living it, being in it. And it is utterly exhausting. It, it's incredible. <laughs> it's absolute miracle, I think. But it, it is exhausting. And it's not uncommon for someone who is in new training to find themselves going to bed at half past six, seven o'clock in the evening because they are completely and utterly shattered. Um, mm. and, and it makes you think, okay, so someone has an assessment of dyslexia and then someone else says, now, now we're going to give you a training scheme. They're trying to get their head around the fact, what does this mean? And then they're put in the environment, they've got to learn new stuff and carry on doing all the things that they were doing before. Recipe for disaster, as far as we're concerned. Get your emotional world sorted <laughs> out. Get all the stuff that are the triggers that might, you know, your manager might remind you of the nasty teachers in school, that kind of stuff. Get that sorted out in your head so that you have some resources. We work with anger management, assertiveness techniques, all sorts of things, so that people have um, a comfort blanket that they can fall back into if they find themselves getting triggered by something that they know would devastate them and put them into that, that blankness, that, that um, eye-staring into headlights moment of there's absolutely nothing between my ears at the moment. It's mm. giving them resources so that they can actually cope with the world. But, yeah, I mean, often family members don't appreciate the, the energy. It goes back to energy. And so it's interesting um, because in the UK, uh, you've got higher rates of diagnosis within the school system. 
I think so compared to, to Australia. It, it appears that there's a lot more opportunity to be assessed in school or in the workplace. You've got your workplace assessors as an example. But it, well, it just... I'm not so sure about schools. I know a lot of parents have a great deal of trouble getting any kind of assessment done through the school, the school saying that, you know, we, we will work with any child that has a, a learning difference and they won't have the assessment that says they are Okay, because I was wondering whether being diagnosed as a child then reduces your risk of um, needing mental health and wellbeing support as an adult because you've um, been diagnosed and hopefully had early intervention and you've built that self-esteem. So I was just interested to know whether that was the case in the UK. Yeah, I can give you my view on it. Not necessarily uh, what my education colleagues would, would say. It very much depends on, um, right, you get an assessment and you have all these pages of um, psychological jargon and testing and the rest of it. It doesn't actually tell you what to do about it. Now, um, one of the needs of any human being is to sort of feel that they have autonomy over what goes on and in those situations often this report is handed to all the experts who very often are not dyslexic or neurodiverse themselves saying that we know what's best for you I don't think that's actually true we need to look at how that person thinks they work well can learn well I'm not sure the schools that have a very universal approach are, are the best environment, but certainly once you get to uh, university, perhaps, the workplace depends on the manager, depends on the empathy that comes from their management style. Being okay with yourself is not dictated by having a statement, not by having an assessment. It is about the environment, about the people that can listen to you, can support you. And it needs just one person to be there who understands it, that can allow some to have faith in themselves, to take the world on if they want to, just keep on keeping on. So I'm afraid I can't give you a a, a nice, neat answer to that. Um, Things may be very different here than they are in Australia. It can always be a heck of a lot better. And it is really about people accepting difference does not mean strange. It's an opportunity to to learn and to grow and to be inspired by others who who think in a different way. We're all necessary. That's why we're still around um, in the the DNA pool. But it's um, being different. It can often, as we're learning to our cost throughout the entire world, mean something is strange, weird, threatening, rather than interesting, intriguing, inviting it's been such a pleasure talking to you and learning about what you're doing over in the uk and um you know at some point hopefully we can we can build the type of supports in australia that you have in the uk are there some final thoughts um for our listeners around it could be a parent that's got a dyslexic or neurodiverse child uh, or an adult um, that's dyslexic or neurodiverse listening to this podcast that uh, you think might be useful for them? It is about accepting 
your child as wonderfully unique as they are, not how you think they should be. So the parent has got to do a lot of internal exploration is do I want my child to succeed in whatever succeed means to them because of how it reflects on me? Or do I want them to grow at their pace, which can be a different pace to others, so they feel comfortable with themselves? It's also about really understanding dyslexia themselves, do they? Do they have the same prejudices about it that many others do? Really questions us. We so often expect our children to go off and do the, like, the counselling work, but often it's the parent that needs to do it so that they, they know who they are and how they are parenting their child, what, what biases they might be putting on them. It is about um, modelling how you would like your child to be treated, doing it yourself. Uh, many want to educate their, their children in a way because that was not the, the opportunity that they had. That might not be what that child needs. But also to, to remember that sometimes we take a bit longer to get where others have. So there, there seems for me to be a kind of 10-year lag in a strange sort of way. It's like we need to be cooked for longer. But when we get it, it is rains off freedom, fine, now we can do it. But it can take take longer. And for some children, being at school is not their greatest thing. And they have to wait until they're in the 20s and even 30s before they feel, right, I get me. And that's what happened with my own family. Do you find um, when families come through to you that there's possibly or generally there's a parent that could be neurodiverse and they haven't known? And mm. then there's a revelation within the family? Always, yeah, yeah. Not so much a revelation, um, more a slow, oh. <laughs> <And then laughs> looking, looking at the family tree, they, they remember sort of mad Auntie Hilda and Uncle Fred <laughs> um, and their, various things, you know, quirky people, creative people. And I think the Industrial Revolution has got a heck of a lot to answer for, but that creativity that the artisans that we so need uh, got sort of filtered out with the whole reading and writing thing. We're not built to read and write. We have to be taught to read and write. It doesn't come um, innately. Yes, they, they, they will often say, oh, yeah, that's just like me. Is that why I feel such and such? Yeah, yeah. Uh, should I have an assessment? Is often the next question. Well, it's up to you. Do, what would you need it for? Why, why would you want to have one done? Is it to be able to say to people that I know for definite I am dyslexic? Or is it uh, a guidance as to what you might do with your life afterwards? You know, it's up to the individual. But yeah, there, there is often that, oh my goodness, I see, right, okay. Do you think that then helps with accepting your their child's differences when the, one of the parents realises that that's... If, they're the same. <laughs> if they are an enlightened parent, possibly. Um, the two bookends to that are the parent that says, well, it happened to me and I'm all right. 
Um, you just have to try harder. And that may be whether they are a thinker or a neurodiverse thinker. Or the other side is, oh, don't even try. Um, you just fail. I know I tried and you know, I couldn't get anywhere. So it, it, it's a hard one. Um, I, I, I understand both sides. It, it's devastating to keep working on something and being set up to fail. And if you have managed to work so hard, do you lose the empathy towards a person who may be like you, but is most definitely unique in their own way? So it is keeping a very open mind. I go back to my comment, it's accepting that child as that child, as that unique child, not as an aspect of yourself or um, a, a projection of what society says they should be at a given educational level. Yeah, it's a really complex situation, isn't it? And when you framed it in those two different bookends, it made me really think, because in my head I was like, oh, yes, my child's dyslexic, now I have all this empathy. But listening to both those sides, you can see how family dynamics and the complexities of um, multiple family members being neurodiverse can be really challenging, and it is really challenging. I could um, spend a lot of time talking to you and learning and listening to um your thoughts and ideas, Penny. So thank you so much for coming on the show uh, today. Are there any last words you'd like to say before we uh, wrap this up? No, it's it, my absolute pleasure and thank, thank you for, for asking. I never know quite what to say when they're sort of last words. Um, it, it's, it's ongoing. <laughs> uh, it's about pacing yourself, making sure that your energy is distributed fairly. We have to be proactive rather than reactive otherwise we do get stuck on the hamster wheel in my humble opinion so it's anticipating for instance if I were to have um, a caseload of clients throughout the day have a caseload and someone said right you've got to go to a networking event and leave now I would say no I can't whereas 20 years ago I would think there's something wrong with me not being able to do both think about yourself put yourself first how am I going to deal with this energetically? And am I comfortable with it? And am I doing the best I can do, my personal best? And if you say yeah, that's fine. It's easier to say no to things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when we understand more about what we need, we can yeah. um, say I can't do that right now or that's, yeah, you can shift, shift things around. Yeah. But if you grow up not knowing what it is that you need or what it is you're doing wrong so you can't actually put it right, that's setting someone up with a very confusing sense of self. Just, just as a last moment, the, the name groups with its three O's, the gur is about the anger that kind of comes up of getting things wrong. The oops is about getting it wrong but then not knowing how to put it right. And the, the big O in the middle is about community. It's about everyone being equal. It's fantastic and um, I really love that because I always, when I try to find you on Google all the time, I forget the third O and it takes me a little while to um, <laughs> to uh, uh, yeah. find you and I have to put in counselling or UK and, and then it comes up. But I won't forget that now that you, because um, I can associate the it different was, letters. Yeah, it was done deliberately because... It, it, it's a group of young people who came up with it. We looked at it, but it had to resonate 
with us. It's got to be some kind of name. Does it matter if it has three O's, if it looks right to us? And in the middle thought, no, why not? Because we're expected to put up things we don't understand all the time. I love that. <laughs> Thank you so much for giving up your time today. I really, really appreciate it. My absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Take care, everyone. If you would like to find out more about Penny and her work at groups, head to deardyslexic.com. There you will also find our mental health and thriving series episodes and podcasts from dyslexia and intimate relationships to looking after yourself and your mental health and well-being. We have something for everyone. Did you know we now have a new live Q&A series called Question Dis, D-Y-S, created during COVID to help our community feel more connected. Each month, I interview a fellow dyslexic about all things dyslexia and life. The Question Dis series is running through Facebook Live. I really hope you can come along and join us for one of these sessions. If you haven't already done so yet, make sure you sign up to our mailing list so you can keep up to date with everything we do at the foundation. Head to deardyslexic.com. And don't forget, if there is anything you have heard today that was distressing, please call Beyond Blue on 1300 22 46 36 or Lifeline on 13 11 14. If there is a topic you would like discussed on the show, please email us, admin at deardyslexic.com. Thanks for joining us. Bye for now. Uh.